electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And maybe things are looking up. We'll explore that this hour. Frank, thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead today on The Exchange, stocks are trying to stay positive, coming off a huge up week. But all the major averages are still down 13% or more this year, 26% for the NASDAQ. We'll get some advice on what to do for the back half as the calendar turns to July. And if you thought it was bad for stocks, 2022 has been a whole lot worse for crypto. Bitcoin's down 55%, Ether down 70%, crypto stocks like Coinbase Crush 2. We'll hear from one analyst who says the bottom is not in yet. Plus, how the consumer is shaping up for the rest of the year. Ready to spend on makeup, chocolate, and rotisserie chickens. We've got three buys and a bail consumer staples edition. But first, Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange. What's the latest, Bob? Uh, it's a bit choppy today, Kelly. Uh, we had a big, big update on Friday on the Russell rebalancing and a little bit less decisive trading action today. Let's take a look at the major averages. S&P is in a fairly narrow trading range today, about 40 points. Uh, same with the Dow Industrials, about even split, 15 and 15, uh, advancing and declining stocks there. Uh, we saw weakness in tech, energy and pharma on the strong side. Same with the NASDAQ uh, 100, about evenly split, 50-50 or so. Take a look at the commodity stocks because that's an interesting interesting story. Last week, energy, metals, fertilizers, they were all slammed. Today, they're the market leader. So this is this rotation that's occurring here, making it difficult to get a really uh, series of updates that are going here. Last week, Conversely, consumer discretionary stocks were slammed. So the travel stocks all rallied. They moved to the upside. Today, guess what? They're the ones that are moving down. So you see them almost rotating in and out of the markets. These are consumer discretionary names. Big tech had a very good week last week. Uh, Microsoft, Apple, NVIDIA, they were up 5 6 7%. Not much energy here today. All the major ones are down except for Apple. Modest follow-through from the nice rally for Apple last week, maybe uh, 6% now in the last four or five days. Uh, is there anything that's got consistent? Consistent energy right now. About the only group is pharmaceuticals. There's only three new highs in the S&P 500, and they're all pharmaceutical names. Lilly, Bristol-Myers, uh, and Merck all at new highs. Finally, uh, Kelly, remember, we've got a rebalancing this week at the end of Thursday. That's the end of the quarter. We'll see pension funds and other big companies rebalancing. Uh, we may see some moves here because the S&P is down 13 percent. The 10-year Treasury is down 4.1. These are prices that are down here. So there is some hope here that some big institutions may have some stocks to buy uh, on Thursday on the last day of the quarter. We'll keep an eye on that. Kelly, back to you. Oh, it's coming up so quickly. Bob, thank you very much, Bob Bassani. If you're starting to feel a little more bullish these days, how should you set yourself up for the back half of the year. My next guest likes names with pricing power that pay dividends. Joining me is Michael Cugino, the president and portfolio manager of Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds. Michael, good to see you. Lovely artwork behind you there. Are, are you feeling a little more bullish these days? Just talk to me about kind of your, your general sort of off-the-cuff feelings on this market. Good afternoon, Kelly, and thanks for the plug for the artwork. <laughs> um, no, I'm not really feeling bullish. I've I, or bearish. I mean, I think we're in a period of volatility, um, a sea change in, in with a lot of unknowns that can't be explained right away. 
Uh, interest rates, I think, are, are not done going up. Um, we've got a lot of unresolved issues geopolitically, supply constraints, economic activity, heading towards a recession quickly, gradually, or at all. Um, consumer spending, is it going to hold up? Um, business spending, employment, I mean, it goes on and on and on. So I, I think the, the way to play this is to be diversified among a bunch of different asset classes. You mentioned equities, and certainly in that area, we like dividend payers, we like growth at reasonable price, we like companies that have purchasing power and can control their cost structure. That is all true and still true. We're not negative equities, and equities are reasonably priced right now. Yeah. S&P by trading at about 17 times earnings, earnings yield 6%, it's, it's a lot more reasonable than it was. Having said that, they could go down further given interest rates, given recessionary risk, um, and all the other unknowns out there. So before we talk about some of the names that, that you know, especially on the dividend growth piece of this and, and pricing power, some of the companies we talked about a couple months ago that you like to believe were large, a lot of energy names, a lot of financials. Are you still sticking with those plays today? Because they are not trading well lately. Certainly the energy names are not. Uh, yes, we are. Uh, yeah, energy had a bad week last week, although it's up a little bit today. I mean, we're long-term investors, so a week is not going to matter that much. When you look at the macro story in energy, uh, supply, demand, um, you know, energy is, is going to, I think, stay high. Uh, oil, natural gas, and as a result, these companies are going to do well. I think they're going to increase their dividend payouts over time. Uh, and and there is a real um, supply-demand mismatch going on globally here um, with energy. So, yes, we do like it long-term. Broadly, More broadly speaking, we think we're probably in the beginning stages of a, a broader commodity cycle where underinvestment from the last 10 years, supply-demand, um, you know, likely inflationary risk, uh, those all bode well for commodities going forward. So and those are companies that are trading, you know, at reasonable prices long term, they tend to, you know, when they're doing well, the money flows to the bottom line, dividends go up, payouts go up, buybacks go up, special dividends occur. So it's not a bad place for a long term investor to be. Sure. So, so you are sticking with this as kind of a, a maybe multi-year move here. What about some of the other dividend payers with pricing power? I mean, where else other parts of the market do you like right now? And, and again, given the interplay with rates, if you do think rates are going to keep going up, would that put any downward pressure on these names? It, it could. I mean, if rates go up, it puts downward pressure on a lot of equities. So, I mean, right. yeah, that, that's true. But, um, you know, we tend to be diversified among a bunch of different industry groups. So we haven't gotten out of tech, although we have a, a healthy weighting that, that's not overdone. Even though the prices have come down, um, you know, higher price stocks tend to decline in higher cost of capital environments. So, um, you know, in manufacturing financials, you mentioned, we like the, the um, interest you know, the interest earnings yield in, and the, the banks are healthy, as we found in the recent Fed, you know, stress test that they did. So we do like banking at the moment, although, you know, to the degree you have more stress caused by a recession, that could change in the future, but it's not true now. Um, and some of the industrials are, are attractive in this environment. So we do like to spread our bets around on the equity side. 
And on the bond side, we like low duration, high quality balance sheets. All right. Well, at least you like something, which is more than a lot of people feel right now in that space. Michael, thanks for your time Kelly, today. Quick, Go ahead. Quick point. Yeah. You know, inflation running at eight or nine percent, you know, that's cash is earning eight or nine percent negative right now. So we think you can do better staying invested, being diversified and uh, then than a negative eight or nine percent on inflation. Yep. And short duration, like you said, Michael, it's great to have you here today. Thank you. Michael Thanks. Cugino. Take care now. Rates are on the rise after the five-year auction. Let's get out to Rick Santelli for all the latest action. Rick? Yes, and all we need to do, Kelly, is show an intraday chart of fives, because I'm pretty sure viewers are smart enough to realize that when yields soar after an auction ends, it wasn't a particularly good auction. So we had 47 billion fives, just following 46 billion, we had an hour and a half ago for twos, which didn't go well. This auction... 3.271 is the yield. I gave it a D as in dog. The one issued market was trading about four basis points below where it priced. That is really nasty the way uh, the numbers worked out today. People definitely shying away from this particular set of refunding announcements and auctions today thus far. And if we look at all the internals, they're all weak. A bid to cover weakest since February. Indirect bidders under 60 at 56.5 weakest since September. The only bright spot was direct bidders almost at 20%, blowing away the 18% 10 auction average. Dealer community took nearly 24%, which is too much. You want investors to take the bulk. What is this telling me about the markets? Well, it might actually be some better news for equities because as equities slowly start to fight their way trying to form bottom, we now see that the treasury yields here and even sovereigns in Europe are starting to get more buoyant after coming down from intraday peaks about a week ago. Back to you. Thank you very much, Rick. Rick Santelli, you see the pop there on the screen he was talking about in yields. All right, meantime, the G7 summit is underway with the war in Ukraine front and center. President Biden, along with the leaders of Italy, the UK, Japan, France, Germany, and Canada, are all gathered in Germany for the annual three-day meeting. And we've gotten plenty of headlines already. Kayla Tausche is there, and she brings us the very latest. Kayla? Kelly, leaders of the seven richest economies in the world have seen their outlooks clouded by that protracted war in Ukraine and skyrocketing global inflation made worse in part by some of the policies designed to try to stop the war. Even so, G7 leaders gathering in Bavaria this week have rolled out some new policies to try to tighten the screws on the Kremlin. New tariffs, new export controls, bans on Russian gold. Uh, they are trying to increase the pain on Vladimir Putin, though they are beginning negotiations to cap the price the Kremlin can charge the rest of the world for its oil. A senior administration official telling me the goal of that is keeping supply steady, reestablishing some certainty to the market, but limiting the money that Russia makes from the sale of oil. And while National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that this was one of the most meaningful developments to come out of a G7 in recent years, it also shows the tightrope that the bloc is trying to walk to ease domestic inflation while also trying to uh, reestablish some of this supply on the market and shift the message away from outright bans, which is where it had been. Experts, though, are not quite sure how this is going to work in practice, especially without India and China, which are major customers of the Kremlin, being on board with this. Tim Adams, who leads the Institute for International Finance, tells me that's the challenge with any of these regimes. How do you get more people on board? As long as Russia can sell energy, that can generate a tremendous amount of income, 
even at a discount. Meanwhile, inside Ukraine, the bombardment has ramped up again. President Zelensky posting this on his Telegram account, which he says is a Russian bombing of a shopping mall with a thousand civilians inside. Earlier today, Zelensky urged Western leaders for more aid and weaponry to try to end the war inside his country by the end of this year. The U.S. is expected to send more longer-range rockets to the country, and G7 leaders in a statement said they will provide all the support they can for as long as it takes. Yeah, Callie? that was such a brazen strike, especially right now. Kayla, thank you. Uh, we appreciate it. Kayla Tausche reporting. The G7 alliance is already being tested by the Russia-Ukraine wars. It moves into this protracted phase and with more high-profile strikes like the one Kayla just mentioned. They have energy prices soaring, inflation absolutely skyrocketing in Europe. The heads of the top French energy companies writing a joint op-ed over the weekend urging efforts to lower demand, worried about what could happen once winter settles in. In a CNBC op-ed this weekend, the Atlantic Council's Fred Kemp says staying unified is a prerequisite for victory. He joins us now. He is president and CEO of the Atlantic Council and a CNBC contributor. Fred, it's good to see you. A lot to run through here, but the, let's just start with the idea of price caps. Could this work? Well, first of all, Kelly, it's great to see you. I'm sitting in Madrid for the NATO summit tomorrow. It's really uh, meaningful that the G7 takes place ahead of the NATO summit, because without the economics uh, right, you're not going to get you're not going to get this uh, support, the military support for um, Ukraine. Right on your question, uh, I've been looking into this, and the way it would work is that insurance companies would set a cap, and they would only insure to that cap. That means that India, a country like India, could only charge uh, up to that cap to be fully insured, and it wouldn't have to say to Russia, "Look, we're not." going to take your oil, it wouldn't get into a dispute with Russia, Russia would use this insurance argument. Uh, nobody really knows how this is going to work. I think it's right to ask some real questions about this. Uh, since February, India has massively increased its deliveries for, for oil. It's now going into six-month uh, contracts, so many of this wouldn't be turned around even if they could do this over time. So I wouldn't, uh, I mean, I, it, it's a nice theory. Uh, the finance ministers will work out how it's going to work. Um, it's a way to bring in countries that aren't entirely on board, but I'm not sure how it will work, Kelly. Well, the India thing is a little complicated because, of course, cracking down on their sort of purchasing of Russian oil puts more pressure on Russia. But at the same time, if you really take those Russian barrels to India out of the global market, the price of oil is going to keep rising for everybody. Well, that's right. And the other side to this, the Indian finance minister has been um, uh, defending the purchases, saying, look, it, it's, my, in, it's my job to get the best priced oil the, uh, uh, that I can in the greatest quantities I can. And then these go into Indian uh, refineries. The refineries make uh, refined products that now sell at, of course, really inflated and large prices on the world stage. I, I just don't think this is going to be turned around anytime, anytime soon. So we have a, you know, a new proposal to try and cap oil prices where, on, on the other hand, a measure that would put more upward pressure on them. So um, it sort of explains the price action today. Let's turn back then to Europe and its unified front on this, where we've seen France wanting to kind of offer, um, you know, an, an, a sort of escape hatch to Russia or to Putin if needed. Um, what do you think is likely to come out of the G7 in terms of the messaging here and the ballast, the firepower that the Europeans are going to bring to this when the heads of their own energy companies are warning about what could happen as a result? 
Well, let's let's look at the good side first, and that is that the G7 applied sanctions of a sort it had never applied before, freezing the central bank assets of a G20 country, that's Russia, so $350, $400 billion of assets uh, frozen. And we saw the, the Russia's first uh, sovereign debt, uh, foreign currency sovereign debt uh, default on Sunday, the first since 1918. So that shows that they're being squeezed. But on the other hand, you have now 8% inflation in Europe. You have a slowing of growth, probably heading to recession territory, maybe by the end of the year into next year. You've got a lot of political pressures on the various leaders uh, of Europe. Uh, and so the uh, and, and you saw that in the election after Macron's election in France, French President Macron, he did not get his majority in France. So there's some real political tensions as well. And so I think you'll see the staying power of European leaders being uh, weighed against the war of attrition of Putin. And Putin is betting that he can stay longer than European leaders can stay. What you're seeing at the G7 is they understand he's waiting for them and they're not going to back off. The real question is, will the politics and the economics of it all allow them to keep the pressure on Putin to the point that the Ukrainians win whatever in the end that uh, that ends I up I mean, meaning. the only thing that could matter for this summit right now would be to ever, for everyone to walk away with a concrete sense of where this energy is going to come from for the next six to 12 months. Well, look, absolutely. Uh, I, I think that uh, a slowing economy is going to reduce uh, energy prices because there'll be less demand. So that, that's certain. Uh, but uh, of course, everything we've been talking about in the war lifts the demand. The, I'm in Madrid. What people are looking for here at the NATO summit is two questions that are also hard to answer, which is how do you give the Ukrainians weapons that are long range enough that the killing can be stopped, the hitting of civilians can be stopped. So far, the West isn't willing to do that. Hmm. Uh, and secondarily, the Russians are talking about escalation, potentially hitting uh, armed sites, maybe in the Baltics, maybe in Poland. And uh, what do we do then? Uh, yeah. We say, we were saying, NATO saying it's going to defend every inch of NATO territory, but nobody's really decided what that means. Wow, well, we'll leave it there. Fred, uh, thank you for laying it all out for us. And we'll check back in soon. We really appreciate it. Kelly, I always enjoy it. Fred Kemp with the Atlanta Council. Now, he mentioned Russia's debt default. A historic one has just taken place there. The first time Russia has defaulted on its foreign debt in over a century. Seema Modi is following the early fallout for us. Seema? Kelly, $100 million in interest in two bonds, dollars and euros, that is what led Russia to default. Now, unlike other countries like Greece, Argentina, Venezuela that have dealt with debt issues in the past, Russia's default is mostly symbolic in nature. Thanks to rising oil prices, it's sitting on billions of dollars in reserves. The problem is sanctions put in place by Europe and the U.S. are preventing Moscow from paying its bondholders. Kremlin saying this morning it's been trying but can't. Again, blaming the sanctions. Asset managers like BlackRock, Ashmore are among the asset management firms that do have exposure to Russian debt, at least in the past couple months. The question is what happens next? Uh, they could certainly take legal action. Experts we spoke to say that is unlikely given that the country is in the middle of a war with Ukraine. Andrews Tursa at think tank Tenu Intelligence says this will likely affect Russia's reputation and heighten financing costs in the long term. The impact will mount once Russia's revenue from energy exports starts to decline. So Kelly, the key distinguishing factor here could really be the price of oil. Absolutely.
Absolutely. Seema, thank you very much, our Seema Modi. Coming up, the crypto collapse continues with Bitcoin down 70% from its all-time highs. But hanging on to the 20,000 mark is a bottom in sight or not. That's next. Plus, consumer staples, one of the few bright spots this year. And between Hershey, Costco, Estee Lauder and Walgreens, our trader has three buys and one bail to consider. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Bitcoin stabilizing in the past week around $20,000 after falling by more than 50% this year. Goldman has downgraded Coinbase to sell, though, saying decreased activity across the crypto sector will cut Coinbase's revenue base by 61%. Coinbase shares are down nearly 10% today. My next guest two weeks ago said crypto is yet to find a bottom. So are we getting any closer to it? Let's bring back Kavita Gupta. She's Delta Blockchain Fund's founder. Good to see you, Kavita. You feel a little more encouraged uh, after what did we dip to, 18,000 a couple weekends ago? Mm -hmm. Hi, Kelly. Thank you for having me back. Um, I mean, we going to continue to see some stabilization, some spike, and then the shorting would start again. It's good to see market keep on reassuring every time the price goes down. What I really find optimistic is there are always a buyers, both institutional and crypto native, like always during the NFT NYC conference, the whole conversation is, oh, when do we buy again? So I think I like that spirit of really a long-term belief in the space. And Going back to what you just said in the introduction, do I still think we do, We are we at the bottom or are we still going to go down? I do think over the next couple of months, especially around September, October, I wouldn't be surprised if we actually see the bottom. Okay, so you still think maybe it could be more of an autumn event. After you were on last time, one of your I got a lot of questions from people who heard what you said about the way that you'd want to invest in cryptos, kind of with the tools and a lot of the technology but a lot of people wondered why you didn't sound more bullish on the price of the coins themselves. And so I didn't know if if maybe you are and I, I didn't explain it well or if, you know, if you could explain sort of tactically why you'd want to be in the picks and shovels space instead of buying the gold outright, so to speak. 
<laughs> so I think there is a Delta blockchain fund, which I represent, which only invest in technology, pre-seed and seed stage. And we believe in the long-term tech in the blockchain space. So that's what the fund invests. Do I personally believe that I am, am I bullish or not? I'm hundred percent bullish on the space. Like th that's why exactly I said, like, did I personally buy? Yes. It's not a financial advice. It's my personal belief that in the long term, whatever the last all time high we saw 64, 65 for Bitcoin and like 4,000 uh, around 700 for ETH. I think it's going to go, it's going to be much bigger than that. Uh, whether that's going to happen in a year and a half or that's going to happen been over four or five years. Uh, that's the pathway which we have to see. But the reason I'm bullish for the space, the core of that still goes back to the ETH prices as a utility and Bitcoin as a currency. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, so, and again, you've been in the space for almost a decade. You've seen the, 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 these things come and go. When you see a note like Goldman's on Coinbase and the struggles that platform might face as fees go to zero, um, is that a, a good example of a cautionary tale, you think, in crypto? Or do you think that Coinbase will be able to figure it out and ultimately find a way to benefit if the crypto space does as well as you think it might over the next five to 10 years to come? Yeah, I was actually very sad and weird to see that because, see, an exchange business always goes like that. Whatever activity you do on an exchange, you buy or you sell, you pay the fees for it. So it has always been balanced with respect to like when the time is high, everybody is buying, when the time and, and the smart people selling at the all time high and when the time is low, people are still liquidating or figuring out their transaction or buying. So. I feel like exchanges will not have the same all-time high revenues as a couple of months versus when the market is low. But said that, will Coinbase completely disappear? I don't think so. But that is also pain of being an IPO company, a public company, because then you have your stocks out there and you have people uh, ready to create different derivative or short or sell it. And that's, I also think, is the main difference between Coinbase and FTX today, that in this time, FTX can make a decision of buying and providing liquidity to any platform without being in the eye of SEC, also not being U.S. registered, but Coinbase cannot even have a lending product. Out yeah, there. no, it's fascinating to watch Sam Bankman-Fried, kind of the J.P. Morgan of this crypto cycle, <laughs> the uh, lender or buyer of last resort, and we'll see where it goes from here. Absolutely. It's super fascinating. Like, I, I just reiterating what a crypto Twitter is like, is SBF is going to be the Jesus of uh, <laughs> crypto by the time all-time high comes. Who knows? But I think for me, the core component goes back at the season of being a U.S. company and going IPO versus not being a U.S. company, doing the same business, yeah. but then you can expand it into 10 other products. You no, know? and it's it's too bad in a way, um, because like you said, there are implications there for, for the U.S.'s position in all of this. Kavita, we'll leave it there for now. I uh, really appreciate your time. Good to see you again. Thank you. Kavita Gupta with Delta Blockchain. Still ahead, Spirit Airlines board still supports a merger with Frontier, but both stocks are falling sharply today. We'll hear from the CEO of Frontier ahead of Thursday's shareholder vote. Plus, a housing surprise in May as mortgage rates dip slightly. Is it a bullish sign for home buyers or a last hurrah from the spring buying season? We'll explore the uptick in pending home sales. We're back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. 
Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, package list and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. A quick check on markets shows we're down just fractionally for the Dow and the S&P, down half a percent for the Nasdaq. Energy is the top sector today, helped by crude climbing back towards $110 a barrel. We discussed those reasons a little bit earlier. Nat gas up as well by about 3%, 6.40 after falling below $6 per million BTUs earlier this morning. Nat gas prices are still down more than 20% in June, flirting with their worst month since late 2018. Meanwhile, B. Riley downgrading Bed Bath & Beyond to neutral, citing store traffic declines. The stock is set for its third straight month of losses, down almost 4% today. Needham downgrading Etsy to a hold, saying it'll remain under pressure despite already falling 60% this year. And Etsy shares are down more than 3%. Now to Contessa Brewer for a CNBC News update. Contessa? All right, Kelly, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, everybody. We have some breaking news just in the last few minutes here. The House's January 6th committee has scheduled a surprise hearing for tomorrow, saying it will present what it calls recently obtained evidence. It's not saying what that evidence is, but it could involve footage subpoenaed from a documentary filmmaker who was working on a project involving former President Trump and his family. Well, with her sex trafficking sentencing now less than 24 hours away, Ghislaine Maxwell is on suicide watch. Her defense attorney says she's not suicidal, that instead she's asking for a delay in the case. Prosecutors counter that Maxwell claimed staffers at her jail are threatening her safety but won't say why, and so they've added additional precautionary measures. U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner appeared in a Russian courtroom today for a preliminary hearing four months after her arrest at a Moscow airport for cannabis possession. Her trial is now scheduled to begin July 1st. Kelly, I'll see you again in about half an hour. Sounds good. Contessa, thank you very much. Still ahead, consumer staples have been holding up, outperforming the broader market amid the volatility. It's the second best sector this month, but not all names are created equal. Three buys and a bail staples edition is next. Welcome back, everybody. Consumer staples remain a bright spot in this market, one of the best sectors in June and up 6% in last week's trading. So let's dive in and get some stock-specific action as we look towards the back half of the year. Joining us now is Danielle Shea. She is Director of Options at Simpler Trading. She has today's three buys and a bail. Danielle, welcome back. All right, the first buy is Costco. I think, by the way, it's going to be news to people that you have three buys and one bail. So this is this is going to be great. Costco's on pace for its first monthly gain in the last three. It's up 3.5% in June. Why do you want to stick with this one? Think they'll continue to benefit? You know, Kelly, there's a variety of reasons here. I mean, number one, Costco got punished when Walmart and Target fell so substantially on earnings. But when you look at what Costco actually did, Costco has continued to beat earnings given 
the ongoing economic situation here. And I think that people are going to continue to shop at Costco, especially even more than at other stores, just because of high inflation, even though yes, costs are going up everywhere, it makes a lot more sense to buy in bulk in this current situation than it does to you know, go to specialty retail stores or specialty grocery stores. So for this reason, I think that Costco looks good. I'd like to trade it up to at least $500 and I'm definitely holding and adding to my long-term shares. We're at 481 right now. It's forward PE is 35, which is pretty high. Um, why do you feel comfortable if, if this is on sort of a broader endorsement on this sector? Why do you feel comfortable chasing them? Because when you look at the technical chart here, what I want to look at in the overall market situation is I wanna look at charts that have held up on earnings and with the technicals. When you're looking at the way that this chart pattern overall on a weekly chart basis has held up, it has relative strength, it's very popular, it's one of the top stocks within one of the top sectors. And overall, it continues to trade higher on a weekly basis. So I like to follow the trend. All right, you're following the trend from Costco into Estee Lauder. This is one up 3% in June. It's actually trying to snap a five-month losing streak. Why do you like it here? So I like Estee Lauder because I feel like it doesn't get a lot of attention. I feel like when you're looking at stocks in this space overall, of course, you know, we talk about groceries and we talk about overall energy prices and we talk about commodity prices and how that's impacting things that we're buying but estee lauder doesn't really get a lot of those news related hits right because it's makeup and it's skincare but when you look at earnings that to me is what matters we can still see earnings growth out of estee lauder yes it is down about 30 percent you know with the rest of the market but for me, it just overall goes back to the weekly trend and the fact that they continue to do well in this current economic environment based on what everything based on everything that's going on on an earnings basis. Right, exactly. The strength in, as you're saying, sort of speaks for itself. All right, the final buy here is actually the best performing one of all. It's Hershey. Believe it or not, it's on pace for its eighth month of gains in the past nine. It's up about 5% in June, and it's less than 5% from all-time highs. Why do you like Hershey here? You know, Kelly, I never like to advocate buying shares of long-term stocks as with a stock like this when it's off 5% of the highs, right? But the stock has just been so strong. And for me as a trader, I love to look at stocks that are only 5% or 10% off the highs. And for any stock in this environment to be that close to highs is, is amazing. What this is demonstrating to me right here now is that with everything that's going on, people are not getting rid of their chocolate habits, right? I know it sounds crazy, <laughs> but <laughs> you can see it in the chart and you can see it in earnings. This chart and this stock actually has a history of trading higher going into earnings. And we're going to have earnings coming up in this company at the end of this month. So I have it on a percentage base, percentage basis. It usually trades higher by about 2% prior to earnings. So I think that we could actually see it trade another 8 to $10 higher in the next month, which would be a great trade. Yeah, and believe me, the fundamentals make sense. All right, so those are the three buys. Again, uh, Costco, Hershey, Estee Lauder. Your bail is one we just heard about on Friday as a bail, and it's Walgreens. It's down 4% this month on pace for its fifth monthly loss so far this year. And I believe Gina Sanchez also was not a fan of this stock. 
What do you see when you look at the price action? So there's a variety of different reasons why I don't like this stock. I mean, number one, it made all-time highs in 2015. It tried again in 2018. But if there's a stock that could not manage to make a new high in 2020, I mean, it's dead to me. There's just, there's no excuse for that, right? But when you look at it on a couple other, you, you have to look at a couple other things, right? You know, why are people shopping less at Walgreens? What was supposed to help Walgreens? Well, when everybody was rushing out to get their COVID vaccinations, that was what Walgreens told us. They said, hey, guess what? This is gonna cause so much foot traffic in our stores and things are gonna improve. And we just didn't see that happen at all. Their products are expensive. I would rather go to Costco and buy in bulk than you know pay extra just to buy, it, buy something at a corner store. I think it's a sell every time it rallies into resistance. All right. There it is. The verdict on Walgreens, $42 is the price today. Danielle, thanks for joining us. It's good to have you back. Thank you. Danielle Shea with Simpler Trading. Still ahead, pending home sales climbing for the first time in seven months while inventories start to build. Is this bright spot just a blip? We'll dig into the data next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Pending home sales climbed in May from April, although they're still down 14% from a year ago. But what is going on here? Diana Olick joins us with the details. Diana? Well, Kelly, it's two things behind it, really. A temporary pullback in mortgage rates and more supply on the market. Pending home sales rose very slightly in May, up 0.7% compared with April. That's beat expectations of a 4% drop and broke a six-month streak of declines. Sales still down nearly 14% from May of last year. Now, this index from the Realtors measures signed contracts on existing homes, so shoppers out in the market in May. And while rates have been rising since the start of this year, they fell back slightly in May from a high of just over 5.5% on the 30-year fix to 5 and a quarter. Of course, they shot right back up in June. Now, more supply also came on the market in May, and the slowdown in sales during the months before caused total active inventory to rise for the first time in about two years. But even the Realtors chief economist, Lawrence Yun, suggested this was a blip, saying the housing market is clearly undergoing a transition because of much higher mortgage rates. Now, regionally, sales were very strong in the Northeast, but took the biggest dive in the West, where, of course, home prices are the highest. June may be a very different story as both agents and builders are reporting to us they're seeing a real pullback in demand, Kelly. So this really genuinely could just be a one-month quirk? Yeah, I mean, I think it was that drop back in rates, a little more supply on the market, people rushing to get in because they were upset afraid rates would go higher, which of course they did. And so we saw that. But again, that very small increase doesn't give me a lot of confidence that we're going to see much more ahead, especially given what we're just hearing on the ground now. Yeah, very true. Diana, thank you for now, our Diana Olick. Up next, from housing to traveling, more flight delays and cancellations this past weekend, with the highest number of travelers crossing TSA checkpoints since April of 2020. Can the industry get a handle of things, especially ahead of July 4th? And this is as airline stocks continue to outperform this month. They're in the red mostly again today. We're back in a moment.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Sunday marked the fifth straight day that airlines canceled at least 500 flights. And now the industry appears to be trimming more summer schedules in an effort to avoid further delays and cancellations. Phil LeBeau is here now with the very latest. Phil? Kelly, this is the airline industry trying to do whatever is possible to avoid major disruptions to the flight schedule. So what you're seeing with the airlines is continued problems in terms of cancellations and delays. You mentioned that Sunday was a fifth straight day with at least 500 flights canceled. Today, there have already been 749, according to the flight tracking firm FlightAware. Newark has canceled 17% of its flights today. We've talked about the issues happening at Newark. That's one reason why United last week made the decision that it's going to cut 12% of its daily flights out of Newark, which is its hub, starting July 1st. If you take a look at shares of United in the last month, down about 2%. So not a whole lot of reaction since they made that decision. In terms of all airlines, they have been scaling back their July flight plans all the way starting at the beginning of this year. If you compare their flight schedules in January to now, OAG, which tracks all of these, crunched the numbers for us. You see American, Delta, Southwest, all of them bringing down their schedules considerably. Also want to take a look at two stocks in the red today, substantially in the red. And we're talking about Spirit as well as um, Frontier or the, the Frontier Airlines, its parent company. They have uh, reached an agreement with Spirit in uh, an merger deal in which Spirit once again uh, rejected JetBlue. Here's the CEO of Frontier talking with us on Squawk Box this morning about why he believes Spirit and Frontier still makes the most sense. This is a very clear choice. You know, our merger with Frontier with Spirit actually lowers fares for consumers, whereas the JetBlue uh, proposal with Spirit would actually raise fares for consumers. And at a time when inflation is so important, I think lowering fares for consumers is much more important. JetBlue says Spirit is making the wrong choice. They said that on Friday when Spirit came out with this decision to once again uh, announce that it plans to merge with Frontier. And today the company is out urging investors of Spirit to reject this bid when they vote on Thursday. Interesting to see whether or not we hear something more formal from JetBlue over the next day or two, Kelly. They could come back with yet another bid because we do not have a final vote on this until Thursday, and that's when the Spirit shareholder meeting takes place. And Phil, I just want to go back to that extraordinary graphic you showed a moment ago. So American Airlines is flying 24% fewer flights in July than it did in January. Yeah. Don't, wouldn't no, no, they no, normally? No, 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 no. Then they no, had no, planned in January? Then they had planned. Got it. So every airline sets their schedule months in advance. And in January, all of the airlines thought, look, we're going to be over COVID. We're going to have a lot more flights. Um, what they were hoping was that they would have the staffing as well as the air traffic controllers would have the staffing and the airports would have the staffing in order to make that happen. But they don't have that staffing for a variety of reasons that we've talked about. So they've scaled back their plans and they've done this consistently since January to the point now that on average it's about 17 percent of the July flight schedule it's gone. It's Amazing. just, you know, if you had a flight originally booked, they put you on a different flight. Or in the case of United, they're doing that right now. I mean, absolutely amazing. All right, Phil, thank you very much for bringing that to us, our Phil LeBeau. Our next guest says since uh, sweetening its bid for Spirit, Frontier now has a better chance of winning over JetBlue, but it's still hard to call. Joining me for that and other bright spots, Savi Scythe is Managing Director of Airlines at Raymond James. Savi, it's good to have you. Let me, I can't help myself. Let me just start with what we were just talking about with Phil. So American is flying 24% fewer flights than it had hoped for the month of July. 
that has that is that unprecedented? Has that ever happened before? Are they ever going to be able to get this back up to normal capacity? You have seen in the past where airlines load a, a you know a schedule and then bring it down as it gets closer, and you get a better picture of demand. And and let's not forget that. You know, in January, fuel was you know <laughs> half of where it is today. So there have been other factors that have changed. But the fact is clear that demand is really strong and airlines aren't putting the supply that's going to meet that demand. So they're flying much lower than demand and not because they want to, but they want to make sure that the operations uh, can, can handle you know disruptions. Is there any number that they could pay to get enough pilots and flight staff to for not just American, for all of them to fly as many routes as they'd like? It's it's more of a timing issue, especially on the pilot front, because it's these the training sizes have been much smaller in the past. You you haven't had to train as many pilots to get on, get into the cockpit, and these days the sizes are, are kind of considerably. You know, airlines are hiring three to four times more than they've hired in a typical uh, a month uh, in in the past, and so it, it's it's really more timing and and air, uh, kind of class footprint than what they're paying pilots in attracting because. You know, United, uh, the big the big airlines like United, Delta, American, they're not having any problem attracting pilots. It's a matter of getting them through the training system hmm. and onto the planes. And right. so, and and in some cases, as you pointed out, it's more of an air, uh, airport issue uh, with uh, with just capacity, airspace capacity. Sure, and it's not like it's not like the public wants them to oh just hurry up and train those pilots and get them in the skies. You know, I understand the the need to proceed cautiously. American shares are also down 24% year to date, and it's worth noting that's not, I don't think, one of your big picks here. You like Delta, you like Southwest, those are strong buys. You like Alaska and United. And what do you want Frontier to do here in the shareholder vote? Well, Frontier has done, you know, the, the Frontier, it looks like they've upped the bid. Last week when, when JetBlue came out with their revised offer, we said we didn't see a pathway for the Frontier Spirit merger to get an approval unless Frontier improved the, the offer. And you had that on Friday. And especially with ISS changing their recommendation, I think they have a higher probability of, of getting it uh, approved. Look, from a merger standpoint, you know, the Frontier Spirit merger, you can it makes sense. They're very similar models. They have a lot, a lot of commonalities. Um, but from a shareholder perspective, especially a spirit shareholder perspective, it doesn't need, you know, JetBlue Spirit uh, execution risk doesn't matter uh, because it is an all-cash deal. So what they have to figure out is, do you want the all-cash deal or do you want to kind of take the chance that the macro and, and the execution works out well, that you get a higher price at the end of it and maybe two, two, three years down the road? Right. Wow. So much uh, to grapple with. And again, both of those companies' shares under a significant amount of pressure today. Savi, we'll leave it there for now. Thanks for your thoughts. Savi Scythe joining us from Raymond James today. Still ahead, the box office battle. Theater stocks might be mixed today, but the weekend saw big movies bringing in some big bucks. We have the eye-popping numbers and why the stock's kind of shrugging it off, although AMC's up 11%. We'll dig into that next. Welcome back, everybody. One more thing that should be on your radar before we go. It was a big weekend for Hollywood. Two movies uh, sitting at the number one spot. One of them just passed the billion-dollar mark since its release. Let's get out to Julia Borson with the latest figures for us. Julia? 
Well, Kelly, there were more signs this weekend that there are reasons to be optimistic about the future of moviegoing in the box office as moviegoers turned out and yielded sizable returns for five different films, including Baz Luhrmann's Elvis from Warner Brothers, which debuted with $30 million at the domestic box office, and a sign that older audiences, that's the demographic many feared would stay home, are coming back to theaters. Now, Elvis tied with Paramount's Top Gun Maverick, in, uh, which continues to draw audiences five weekends after its debut, now topping $1 billion in global ticket sales. Meanwhile, Universal's Jurassic World Dominion, which has been out for three weekends, continues to deliver, just topping $700 million at the global box office. Now, theater stocks are benefiting from the weekend receipts. AMC Entertainment shares up about 12%. Cinemark and IMAX shares both up about 1%. Now, Kelly, moviegoing has traditionally thrived during economic downturns, and now there are some indications that once again, despite, in, despite inflationary pressures and recession fears, consumers think that the trip to the movies is worth it, at least when it comes to those big budget and those franchise films. Kelly? All right. Has a pulse, uh, the theater business. Julia, thank you very, very much, Julia Borston. Not only is the box office back, but Stiefel says this market is ready to come back as well. The chief strategist tells us why on Power Lunch, which begins right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.